Welcome back, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am indeed your host, Matthew Keevil. Uh, this is episode 69 for the week of July 31st, and as usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do hop over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And once again, we got an action-packed episode for you. Leslie's going to be swinging by studio for another episode of the Geology Corner. This one is going to deal with XRF technology. That's right, X-ray fluorescent spectrometry. Uh, so we'll be digging into that a little bit about the Acacia theory. Uh, so Leslie's going to be swinging by in a bit. It's going to be awesome. If you're interested in XRF, uh, please do uh, stay tuned for that one. It'll be really interesting. Meanwhile, we also have the next piece of exclusive content from our Canadian Mining Symposium event in London, England this past May. Uh, this one's really cool. It's the panel on strategies for excess cash. Now, full disclosure, this was the panel I was supposed to be moderating before WestJet summarily canceled my flight and, and just screwed the whole thing up. Uh, but our editor-in-chief, John Cumming, persevered and did a great job stepping in to moderate this panel. Uh, so you're going to hear John on this segment, as well as some really heavy hitters in the industry. Uh, we have Stephen Maloney, the managing director and partner of deals and consulting at PwC, uh, Patrick Anderson, President and CEO of Delradian Resources, uh, and also was involved in Aurelian in the discovery of Fruta del Norte. Rob McEwen, Executive Chairman of McEwen Mining. Ed Sterk, Director, BMO Capital Markets. Ian Pierce, Chairman of New Gold. Uh, and finally, yes, our moderator, Editor-in-Chief, John Cumming. Uh, so this is a really good one. It runs about 25 minutes. Uh, and we talk uh, a little bit about what we do with cash. We, we cover dividends, we cover uh, share buybacks, um, we cover M&A, and just a little bit about how people are feeling about the current cycle, some of the mistakes that were made in the previous cycle, um, and uh, what their favorite companies are. Spoiler, they all pick their own company. Uh, but uh, that's not surprising. So it's a good uh, little roundtable uh, with some great moderating by John. So we'll run that in full uh, in a little bit here. But first, let's crack through with our touch of macro for the week, because there's actually quite a bit going on. To start off, all eyes remain trained on the U.S. economy where the quote-unquote Trump bump has failed to materialize. The U.S. dollar remained under pressure following Federal Reserve commentary on monetary policy last week, which indicated that inflation remains below target. The Fed suggested it will start reducing the balance sheet by September, which also led to speculation that there was no rush to raise interest rates. Meanwhile, Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index globally continued to point to strong overall growth. The loonie is flat relative to the greenback, unchanged at roughly U.S. 80 cents. Spot gold was up around $6 per ounce at the time of recording, though Scotia Capital analysts note that, quote, gold price seems to be stuck in a holding pattern, potentially showing that there is a growing doubt over the recent rally. Gold ETFs were down for the seventh consecutive day as investors take profits. Scotia Capital speculated that the market is likely waiting for the U.S. non-farm payroll and PMI data due out later this week. If strong, the U.S. dollar could climb out of its hole. Meanwhile, the entire LME base metal complex was down modestly to start the day, with most notably copper attempting to consolidate recent gains after jumping 11% in July. The other metals have seen less pronounced moves over the same period of time, but appear to be following copper's lead. Furthermore, LME copper stocks were down 1,500 tons overnight, while LME zinc stocks dipped another 1,300 tons as well. 
Spot premium Met coal was up roughly $1.20 per ton this morning at U.S. $180.05 per ton. Scotia Capital analysts note that bids for premium seaborne hard coking coal continue to increase with China's robust steel sector keeping sentiment positive across the entire value chain for all steelmaking raw materials. Market participants are reportedly expecting more modest gains in the domestic coking coal market, which should keep sentiment bullish. Meanwhile, in India, buyers are currently sitting on the sidelines trying to wait out the monsoon season. And that pretty much wraps up our Touch of Macro for the week. So let's forge on ahead. Uh, First, we're going to be running our segment from the Canadian Mining Symposium this past May in London, England. Again, this is moderated by our Editor-in-Chief, John Cumming, and features a very heavy-hitting panel of speakers. Once again, those include Stephen Maloney, Managing Director, Partner, Consulting and Deals at PwC. Patrick Anderson, President and CEO of Delradian Resources, formerly of Aurelian Resources. Rob McEwen, Executive Chairman, McEwen Mining. Ed Stirk, Director, BMO Capital Markets. Ian Pierce, Chairman, New Gold. And of course, our moderator, John Cumming. So uh, I will run this piece. It's uh, actually far-reaching and a really good discussion just sort of on capital allocation, what companies should do with capital when they have it. So they get into how to fund the junior exploration sphere and what the mega diversifies like Glencore and Rio are doing with their capital uh, via vis-a-vis dividends, vis-a-vis share buybacks, etc. Uh, so it's a really good discussion. Uh, we actually put out a, uh, a report alongside PwC on this very topic. So do hop over to northernminer.com. If you're a subscriber, you can grab that report. It's a really interesting read. Uh, it's a survey uh, where we talk to a number of participants in the mining industry to get their feelings on capital allocation and the best use of proceeds for miners. Uh, so do hop over. And if you're not a subscriber, I do recommend picking one of those up. Uh, as always, it's a screaming deal. So uh, hop over to the site, hit that subscribe button. Once again, you can get our executive edition, which is bi-weekly newspaper delivery, complete web access, plus company and property profiles, and personal topic alerts and news archives dating back to 1986. And that's just $289 per year. So hop on over there, grab that. It's a screaming deal. Uh, and then you can get even more depth than what you get on this podcast. So do think about subscribing. Uh, but yeah, let's run this. Uh, you'll hear from John first, and then uh, we'll move right into the discussion. Uh, I'll be back after the break to introduce Leslie's Geology Corner. have Ian Pierce, chairman of New Gold and um, uh, a co-founder of the privately funded venture X2 Resources, as you're familiar with in London here. And you have a long association with Canada through uh, Falconbridge Extrat and Nickel. Um, and then we have Ed Sturk, the uh, director of BMO, Cap- BMO Capital Markets and uh, all your experience with commodities through there. And uh, Rob McEwen kind of a legend in Canadian mining circles. Uh, right now, you are president, chairman, and chief owner of uh, McEwen Mining, which has assets in um, Mexico, Argentina, and Nevada. And then we have Patrick Anderson, president CEO of Dalradian Resources, but probably better known for the Aurelian discovery, which is spectacular, uh, Fruit del Norte, which is going to be mined soon. And then at the end, we have Stephen Maloney, Managing Director and Partner at PwC in Toronto. And uh, I guess let's just kick off. You know, the industry had some tough times there. Uh, there was poor deployment of capital, and it, it created this whole cycle of uh, retrenchment and asset sales, cost-cutting. And it seems like we've been through that, and 
There's now an era of uh, free cash flow, which is nice to have. So a new good problem to have is how to deploy this excess cash flow. So um, maybe, Ed, we could start with you, for just for the big picture view. Where do things stand uh, with companies and free cash flow? Well, I think, um, you know, as you, as you pointed out, things have changed an awful lot in the last um, 14, 15 months or so, if we cast the minds back to the beginning of 2016. Um, the world is a much gloomier place for most people in mining than it is now. And as I look ahead and think about um, deployment of cash and, and how companies sh should, uh, should think about that, I'm, I'm on the equity research side and uh, I cover the diversified miners um, here in London. And just those guys alone on our forecasts, and we've got commodity prices generally coming down over the course of the next few months, uh, next, well, into next year. Um, those companies alone generate around $34 billion in free cash generation in 2018 on our numbers. Now, around $11 billion of that is already earmarked to be paid out to shareholders, um, and around $6 billion for, um, uh, for debt repayments. So that still leaves quite a lot of money to, to use, and um, you know, I think it is a salient question right now. What do, they, uh, what do they do with it? Do they go out and buy things? Do they increase returns to shareholders? And they're already offering pretty spectacular yields. Um, or do they reinvest in their own businesses? And you know, it, it is something that I think is a, is a question in the mind of investors as well. Anyone else have something to chip in there, the big picture? No, I think, um, I think that's the observation. You know, the, the industry's gone through a tough time. I think uh, a lot of the miners through the last down cycle were caught with high debt levels on their balance sheets. And uh, they've had to take action to fix that. But I think it really needs to not try and focus on the short-term cycles, but really look up and look ahead into the longevity of the, the industry itself and try and look at the life of mine or the life of asset view uh, when you think about deploying cash or using cash or accessing cash. So for me, it's about, you know, the unfortunate thing is we all go on this sort of wheel where every quarter we've got to go report to the market about what's going on. And a lot of times that short-term reporting can drive short-term thinking. And I think one has to remember that you've got to, you've got to um, create value, and this business is about creating value in the long term, uh, and reacting to the short term and, and, mm -hmm. and responding to the short term. So I think that, to me, is very important. Otherwise, you know, you kind of whiplash through these cycles where you overreact or underreact based on, uh, on that phenomenon. So I think it really is important not to overreact, but again, to keep your sights on that, that big picture. And again, each you know, a small miner or a junior miner versus a mid-cap versus a large diversified will have different things or levers they can pull. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important to keep that long-term understanding of what, 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 what's going on in the business and particularly what's going on in the market because the market drives everything we do. So understanding your market and how you need to respond to that, I think, is very, very important. Mm -hmm. Rob? John, I don't, I don't think uh, the entire industry is experiencing that flow of cash flow, right? It's not a lot of free cash flow being generated mm -hmm. at the intermediate and junior level. That money has been going, going into development projects, so you're not having that free capital. The, the seniors went overboard on their debt, and they've been paying down their debt and trying to get uh, lower cost operations working, but they they still have a long way to go to retire their debt to be comfortable in this marketplace. Yes. I can assure you there's no free cash flow in the junior level, um, which is uh, something that needs to be addressed because you're talking about the, the looking forward to life of mine. We need to look forward to life of industry. New discoveries need to be made. It's imperative. 
from concept to production, I think the average now is about 20 years to get uh, uh, an idea up and running through the discovery, through development, through uh, proof into something that is going to generate free cash flow. And traditionally, uh, the junior sector is the first that gets chopped. Exploration departments are the first to get chopped in a downturn in, in the majors. And you can't just create overnight a good exploration team. It takes years of working together. And not just somebody out of school can go out and make a discovery. They have to work and learn from good explorationists. But it's so choppy as we retrench that uh, each cycle makes it harder and harder to make those new discoveries. Hmm. I'm curious, uh, Ian, you've been in these huge organizations. Uh, I know with our discussions and our surveys of our readers, uh, we asked them what were examples of companies that wisely deployed cash, and the names were Agnico Eagle, Rand Gold Resources, uh, McEwen Mining, and the McEwen era Gold Corp. And then the, the worst was uh, Barrick, with uh, particularly Equinox. Like, inside these huge corporations, how does a Barrick buy an Equinox? Like, how does that happen? I, I, <clears throat> I can't talk to Barrick's um, position. I don't have the, the right sort of detail, but I think... You know, I think it goes back to, um, I think, the fundamental of how you're organized as a company and how you uh, use the intellectual capacity of that organization and how you deploy it around these sort of decisions. So, you know, during my time, you know, I've, I've somewhat become extraterized and mm. I worked in various corporate structures uh, where there was sort of um, regional representation, there was um, commodity-driven uh, structures. I think um, the most important part is, one is understanding where accountability is. And I think the second thing is about using the resources that the organization has, and if it doesn't have the resources, using external resources to make good decisions. When you start to have organizations where you fragment into silos, and a silo or a part of the organization is able to make a decision excluding other uh, parts of the organization, I can again talk to an example. When I was in Extraordinaire, we bought a business, it wasn't a great business decision. And when you look back at why that happened, it was because a part of the organization uh, was very aggressive, pushing ahead to drive to make the acquisition, and other parts of the organization were not engaged, and if they had been engaged, we wouldn't have made that bad decision. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about right, the deployment of the right resources and having the right accountability structure mm -hmm. um, so that you make good decisions. Mm -hmm. Steve, if I could just bring you in here. Uh, when you're advising your clients, maybe you could talk about the cyclicality of trying to think of your own company within the larger cycles. Yeah, I think um, one of the things uh, in a rising commodity market, different decisions are made than in a stable commodity market or in a down commodity market. And I think one thing that's the same, particularly in a stable commodity market or a down commodity market, is having your liquidity profile known and making sure that even though your liquidity profile looks great at the top of the market, it still should look relatively good at the bottom of the market. I think that's a lesson that's been learned by a lot of miners over the cycle. And a lot of the miners have started to address that as the commodity prices came off and reducing leverage on their balance sheet. We see now some intermediates kind of laddering out their high yield notes, which is all prudent in order to get through these particular cycles, particularly if we think commodity prices are going to be more stable than, than rising. And I think, uh, Companies need to balance that with the ability to continue to survive, put new resources on the books, and bring new mines to production. It's an all very delicate balance, and then try to appease shareholder concerns with some companies wanting dividends. It, it becomes a very complicated equation that 
people really need to look at and really understand and really portray to the market what they're going to do with their cash and how they're going to survive cycles and make sure liquidity profile is intact. We have a large business on the corporate advisory and restructuring side. You don't really want to be dealing with that side of our, our business. And it, uh, something that I see over and over again, that liquidity isn't really looked at in depth as it should be. Mm. And Robin? John, could I add, I think there's a discipline that's not in the market, in the mining industry, and that's share insider ownership. Um, too many management teams have too little invested in their company to guide appropriate growth. In my company, I own 25% of the stock, and I didn't get it for free. My cost base is $125 million, and I just got a salary increase. I get a dollar a year now. So I'm going to make money the same way my shareholders do, and I think the compensation levels have gotten out of hand for most companies, and I lay the blame squarely on top of the corporate governance that says, let's have full disclosure, and everyone just looks, well, they're getting that much, so I should get this much. And it's this comparative race to have the highest salary. And I don't think it's doing any favors for the share owners of the company. Mm -hmm. Rob, not most management teams have $125 million to deploy to get 25% of their company. How... How would they get those positions if they don't have the cash to deploy, if they're starting off in their careers, if they're coming up through the ranks? Well, I didn't start with that. Gold Corp ran, and I was the largest individual shareholder of Gold Corp. And we didn't go to the market a lot. We made do with what we had. We didn't finance all the time. Once an investment banker came up and said, you know, we could raise you quite a bit of money, as Ed might say. Um, you say, we only need enough to get and I think too often there's, well, there's a green shoe and it goes up a little bit bigger. We raise more than you need. And I think investors know what to do with their money. So don't give the company more money than it needs because often it gets spent <coughs> foolishly. Hmm. Um, we're talking about deploying cash now. Ed, I'd be curious if you reflect on the super majors and their dividend policies, like what has gone on in the last few years? Or things got a little out of control there. Um, well, there's certainly been a, a fundamental change in their dividend policies where they've, you know, I think respecting or <clears throat> finally perhaps acknowledging the cyclical nature of the industry, they've moved from progressive dividend policies to ones that are linked to earnings. Um, uh, and that's certainly given them an awful lot more flexibility now, and it's more aligned with a, you know, an industry that is a lot more, uh, a lot more cyclical in nature than, than I think was appreciated before. Uh, in terms of the... Um, um, the free cash flow yields and, and the, um, the ability to utilise those, uh, they, or rather I should take a step back, are those dividends at an appropriate level? Um, you know, I think right now they, they largely are. They're, um, they're, they're yielding somewhere in the order of 4 or 5% and that seems pretty attractive to me. Right. And uh, Robin, Ian, I'd be interested, both of you, what you think of share buyback policies. I know it's a controversial uh, area <laughs> on share buybacks. Share buybacks have been very effective in the New York market for running stocks up. Um, they've been a very large part of it. I think it depends where your, your cash is. Um, the mining industry isn't a good industry to have a lot of debt in. Uh, we've certainly seen that period the last four or five years. Um, I've always, when I was running Gold Corp, we started with debt, but we retired it and had no debt going forward. I just think it gives you a margin of safety that um, 
gives you a lot of comfort at night that there's not someone leaning on your balance sheet. Mm -hmm. um, but a certain amount of leverage in a balance sheet is prudent uh, at times. Um, so it, if you can't put the money into your own operations and improve the operations, if there's not, um, you might want to do a dividend uh, just to expand your shareholder base because there's a large part of the market that is yield oriented. So if you want to get out of just the mining industry, uh, giving more of a dividend. Um, at Gold Corp, we started off paying once a year, then semi-annual, then quarterly, and then we started paying monthly. And I remember uh, I was on the board of a REIT, a real estate investment trust, and I, at every annual meeting, people come up and say, you know, I really like getting this monthly check. And then my mother said that to me one day. She liked getting monthly dividend checks. And so we implemented it, and I think it created a very solid shareholder base for us mm -hmm. at Gold Corp. Yeah. And uh, just going forward, when you think of majors uh, and the exploration play, either putting their own money into exploration plays or purchasing juniors or taking 10, 20% of juniors, what do you think is a good strategy there? For anyone, throw that out there. I can, I can start, uh, certainly from, from the experience we used. Uh, what we used to do is we used to use um, seed capital into junior space. Mm -hmm. So we would give, uh, we would give money to uh, the junior market and stimulate that. As, you know, because, again, they need to be as efficient as they can possibly be. And a lot of times when you create these exploration, particularly when you're talking about greenfields or growth exploration, within corporates that gets lazy and it doesn't get efficient. And the junior space is a very efficient mechanism to, 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 to deploy some cash. Mm -hmm. So near, near, near mine exploration, of course, you'll keep that in-house. But when it comes to looking for that, that next deposit or that next uh, opportunity, you know, we've, we've we used quite effectively um, a program where we would actually put money into a junior and we have a way of you know, be, being able to follow our investment if mm -hmm. something was to come. And if it didn't, these guys are very efficient and actually stop spending the money and move on to something else. They, they, they know because that's, the rest of the money was coming from a, a market environment where they had to be efficient, otherwise they wouldn't get the money. Yeah, it seems to be a trend these days with Agnico Eagle and uh, Hud Bay Minerals and uh, Gold Corp now buying these 10, 20% stakes. Uh, but Pat, would you like a major to come in and take 20% of your company or is that too it, much? Uh... <laughs> no, it's a fine line you have to draw there. If you let any uh, major producer take too large a toehold in your company, you're essentially giving up control down the road yes. and your optionality. So you have to draw a line between getting maybe some strategic investor in, but relying on the market so you can you know, share the upside with the rest of the shareholders. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, maybe what do you think of just raising money whenever you can as a junior? Is that basically this, <laughs> the well, rainy I, day I fund? What Rob's saying about only raise as much as, as you need. But the flip side of that is you raise as much as you need and you go through the, the cycle that we just did, you, you can be, end up in a dire situation of having no cash available to deploy. Uh, we always deploy the money that we, we raise because we raise it to, to spend on our exploration projects. Uh, but you know, the market is, is a difficult place. In the downturn, you'll get premiums from bankers for raising your money that uh, you know, are, are pretty unpalatable most of the time. So you, you just have to... You have to uh, take money within reason when it is available. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's important to focus on milestones where you're going to get an uptick in your value. So, you know, really look at, I mean, you may get more money than you need, but you need to not, again, lose sight of what are those windows or what are those milestones you've got to achieve where you're not starting to create dilution of your existing share base. So you've got to really work, so you're working that money hard, you're seeing that the money is actually creating a, an uptick in value. So when you go to your next raise, you actually, all the, everybody's gaining, the guys coming in are gaining, and the guys that are there are not getting diluted uh, like hell out of, out of the investment they made in the first place. Mm. No, for sure. You've got to keep moving forward. With every dollar you raise, you have to make the project move forward with those, those, those cash deployments. Uh, I guess another area to talk about here is uh, when we had some debt reduction, we had you know, streaming deals, royalty deals, private equity people were coming to the market. Is, is there time over? Is that uh, a dying area? Or um, I'll throw that open to the floor here. I think if you look at the... <coughs> If you, if you look at the options or the opportunities out there they, for, for people coming in from the private equity side or, or the royalty side, they probably are getting a little bit more difficult, in part because some of the best options have, have already bought them. Um, and, uh, and equally, for the potential sellers of these streams, do they necessarily need the money um, coming from that source right now? And that's a question that you know, I think they'll be asked themselves. Sometimes it's a good source of funding to have, but it just depends on the time. Could I jump in? Um, I'm not a big believer in selling royalties or metal streams. I think they're very detrimental to the long-term value of the company. Um, they have been used quite effectively, or there's been a lot of growth between 2012-2015 because the capital markets were closed and there was no options. Uh, but if you looked at the performance of the royalty companies relative to the producers, there was just an enormous gap that opened up. And in a weak metal price environment, you've given away all your margins. You've given away your future. Um, and that's my biggest complaint, that people aren't looking ahead. And if they're coming along and selling you a story that gold's going up and they're going to benefit, all you have to do is say, but didn't you just sell part of your future? Mm -hmm. um, so. I, I think that's really hard, but some people felt that was the only source of capital and to move forward, they did it. Um, you have to be very careful with how much a company sold forward hmm. if, you're going to, if you're buying a stock because you think the metal price is going higher and you want that stock to run. Hmm. Yeah, I'm with Rob too. I don't, I don't like the, the streaming deals at all. I do agree that you're giving away your option value. Uh, and again, particularly in the byproduct, um, you know, there's nothing better than byproducts in my mind. If you're in gold and you've got to buy a product, if you're in copper and you've got to buy a product, it's a great attribute to have. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that leverage is what your shareholders are looking for, is for you to use that leverage. But to your point, I think it shows you how tough the last cycle was. Because it was, you know, desperate companies in desperate times that went to that vehicle to go, um, to go get uh, cash. So I think it's, it's slowed down. Um, I don't think it'll completely go away. Um, and on the private equity side, you know, I was with uh, X2 Resources, and we were called private equity, but we weren't your traditional private equity. We were basically using private funds to create a mining company. So it was a little different vehicle than your traditional private equity. But the challenge with private equities is they have um, short windows, they have investment um, cycles, and they, have, they use leverage to, to um, take advantage of the base business. And in our industry, the leverage can only work when you're moving up the cycle, not when you're moving down the cycle. And, 
the windows, you know, nobody can tell you how long the window of the cycle is going to be. And if you say your cycle, your fund is three years, you know, you, you're really taking a gamble on whether you're going to get that cycle right in that three-year window for a private equity. So that's, that's why I think private equity has struggled a little bit in its traditional form. Yes. Steve? I think also you have to reflect on what stage of development the company is actually in as well and whether it has other producing minds. I, I do think the royalty and streaming companies have a part to play in some companies in their project development life cycle. Now, obviously, there's been a lot that's been put out very early, which are detrimental to helping raise the financing in the future to put a project into production because it, take, it takes away too much of the economics too soon. But I think there's a balance between if you're out there on the project finance side looking to move projects into production, there is a portion of the capital structure that where streaming and, and royalties can play a critical part in helping advance that, that project and the ability to raise the equity for the project. And uh, the time's gone by pretty quick here. We've got a, a minute left. So maybe just go through each person. If you could name a company that you think wisely deploys cash, a mining company. Just uh, starting from Steve and coming back here. <laughs> oh. You know, I, I, I haven't uh, looked at it from, from that perspective. I, I think in the, in the current market, the environment, those who've gone out and refinanced their high-yield notes, such as the HUD Bay and laddered them, and make sure that you don't get into a situation where your valuation is punished because of liquidity constraints. Yes. I think that's been a good use of cash and capital to make sure that you're, you're appropriately valued. So um, I'll, I'll use HUD Bay in the last six okay. months. Patrick? Oh, Delrating Resources, <laughs> coming in the CEO. Even through the, the last four years of the worst uh, downturn we've seen, we managed to raise $20 million dollars a year on yes. average, wow. and we use that money to deploy it, mm -hmm. uh, to build resources, to go through uh, <clears throat> preliminary economic assessments, then through feasibility study, uh, up to a development stage company now. And by meeting those milestones, we didn't have to revert to getting streams or royalties, which uh, I agree with Rob and, yes. and Ian on their, their view on those. So I okay. think our approach is the right approach. Nice. Rob? <laughs> I'll name two. <laughs> Pat, Patrick broke the ice. Um, I'll say McEwen Mining. Uh, we haven't done any financing since 2013. When we did it in 13, it was a rights issue. It was for $60 million. I personally backstopped it to ensure it was done. Um, and we haven't, we've been able to just work with the assets that we have. Um, one company in the space that I think is doing a good job today would be Agnica Legal. Um, it's been building projects, it's got steady progress. Um, it hasn't reached too far in the market. Yes. But I think <laughs> you go through cycles and there's sometimes you probably grab too, more, too much yes. uh, at a time, but uh, right now they're doing a good job. Great, okay, Ed? Um, I'm gonna go for a company which hasn't got a particularly long track history, and it's South 32. But yes. so far in its relatively short corporate life, it has been um, making significant returns to shareholders, and it's also started investing in um, you know, the more junior opportunities in order to foster future growth. And I think it's, it's a little bit ahead of the other major diversifieds in doing that at this point in this cycle. Yes. Ian? So I'm a little conflicted. I've got two, two companies I'm on the board of, so I don't <laughs> want to be uh, biased here. But just steering away from that, I think you mentioned a couple of companies earlier. Agnico Eagle was one of them. The one that I didn't hear mentioned, which I thought had done quite a good job, is Lundy. Yes. That's a nice lead-in to our uh, next uh, panel person. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I want to thank you all, panel. It went by quickly, unfortunately. Thank you. <laughs>
And welcome back to studio. Thanks again to John Cumming, our editor-in-chief and moderator, and all our great panelists at the Canadian Mining Symposium for a fantastic discussion on capital allocation. That event does look like it's moving forward again next year, so if you'd like to get involved, please do reach out to us. Uh, we're looking for partners and sponsors. It was a really exciting event this year, and we're looking to make it even bigger in 2018. Uh, so do reach out to us if you're interested. But let's move on right along to Leslie's Geology Corner for a discussion on X-ray fluorescent spectrometry. That's right, XRF technology. And these are uh, tend to be little portable screening units used in the field to uh, test for certain elements. Now, it does not work on gold. You can't just scan your, uh, your rock sample to see if there's gold in there. Uh, what it does work on is tracer elements. So you can find uh, a little bit on arsenic, lead, zinc, some things like that. I actually just learned that from uh, President and CEO Kevin Keogh of GT Gold, who uh, made that notable discovery in the Golden Triangle, uh, BC's Golden Triangle, uh, and they were using portable XRF units in the field, I believe. So uh, these are used quite often. But Les what Leslie's talking about here is actually, interestingly, as mentioned, the acacia theory, quote unquote. Uh, this has to do with acacia mining and what's going on in Tanzania right now. We've discussed this at length uh, with uh, Barrick having a 63.9% equity stake in acacia. So what's going on right now is they're claiming a lot of these concentrate shipments that they've shipped through their ports uh, are testing for far higher gold content than uh, acacia had been claiming. Um, and uh, a listener actually reached out to us, or a reader, and said that a case, uh, uh, the Tanzanian government was using these XRF guns to actually just scan these concentrates to see what the gold grades are uh, but Leslie's like well you can't scan gold with an XRF gun so there's this whole issue with this uh, this sort of um, uh, what would I say I guess processes so uh, Leslie's going to dig into that it's going to be a pretty interesting uh, little thing we are covering the Acacia Barrick thing uh, just to update you on that situation uh, Barrick did announce that they have officially entered into negotiations with the Tanzanian government so we'll keep our eyes to the sidewalk to see what comes of that but let's head right on over to the geology corner because I haven't actually heard this segment yet myself and I'm quite interested to hear what Leslie has to say about XRF and Acacia. So let's run that and I'll see you after the break. Hey everybody, this is Leslie Stokes and for this week's Geology Corner, I'm going to get you up to date with the evolving story behind the Acacia and Tanzania government dispute and how one of our readers at the Northern Miner may have cracked the case using good old-fashioned science. Now, if you've been following the dispute at all, y'all know it's escalated to a point of total pandemonium. You essentially have a government who, on March 3rd, suddenly banned the export of gold and copper concentrates from the country, leaving Acacia, which is essentially owned by Barrett, completely dumbstruck. Two months later, the government comes out and claims that Acacia has been underreporting the value of its mineral concentrate since 1998, saying they've been gypped out of $31 billion of revenue. And fast forward till just last week, and the government slapped Acacia with a $40 billion tax bill plus $150 billion in interest and penalties to the company. Ouch. So how did the government get to this conclusion? Like, How did all this happen? Where did it start? Well, what happened was that the government performed their own analysis of the concentrate that was being exported and calculated that each 20-ton container that Acacia exports contains 28 kilograms of gold. That's almost nine times the amount of gold Acacia reports is actually in there. 
According to the special committee set up by the government, the entire fleet of Acacia's containers in the shipyard, which represents, by the way, one month of production of the company's two mines, amounts to, get this, 250,000 ounces of gold. And the government also claims that from their analysis, the concentration, or the concentrate, sorry, also contains a lucrative amount of other metals, namely 9.8 tons of ytterbium and 16.9 tons of iridium, along with low levels of rhodium. Rhodium. They even added in the value, get this, of sulfur and iron to the, <laughs> to the mix, just for the fun of it, I'm sure. You know, I'm laughing, but let's get real here. There's absolutely no way that Acacia, from its two little mines in Tanzania, produces more gold in a month than Grassberg. That would also mean that it's three times the amount of gold that Anglo Gold Ashanti produces from its 19 mines combined. And it would make Acacia the third largest gold producer in the world. And they wish, they wish, I'm sure. Because in 2016, their two mines produced and sold 250,000 ounces of gold in the whole year, let alone a month. So, and on top of that, you know, these gold deposits, the type of gold deposits that they're mining, don't even contain iridium. Whereas Acacia says the amount of rhodium in their concentrate isn't even detectable. Whereas ytterbium is so low, it's just, you know, lost in the slag. So for all their questions, there's still so few answers. Acacia maintains the credibility of their concentrate assays and continues to ask the special committee to release information on how they analyzed the samples and came up with their own numbers. So all this being said, this drama unfolding before our eyes, you know, what the heck is really going on here, people? And a very astute Northern Minor reader. His name is Hardoff Westenese. I apologize if I pronounce your name wrong. He's from BC here, Campbell River. He's a geologist and engineer by training. He read um, Matthew Keevil's article about Acacia and the miner earlier last month and commented on it. And he basically summed it all up for us. He said that the Tanzanian government, quote unquote, is probably using a handheld x-ray fluorescence unit to analyze acacia's gold concentrates noting that its ministry of energy and mines put out a request early last year to supply the machines for one of its departments <laughs> and the move falls in line with neighboring zambia who procured at least five handheld xrfs and other xrf equipment last year in a bid to monitor the value of precious metal concentrate being exported by mining companies Okay, this is getting crazy. So Hardoff states that the government's analysis of spuriously high gold, along with high iridium, ytterbium, wild ranges of copper, iron, and sulfur, could all be explained, potentially, by the improper usage of handheld XRF, along with the inherent limitations of the machine itself. Limitations being that handheld XRF units cannot accurately measure gold. <laughs> I guess the technology has come leaps and bounds in the past five years, there's no doubt about it. But it's still extremely difficult to measure gold in samples other than, say, you know, in alloys where gold makes up a large percentage of the mass. And even then you need a special kind of XRF to measure it. And if you know the XRF technology, there's plenty of different kinds of guns that you can buy. And the reason why is because 
the energy produced from the gold atom after it's bombarded with x-rays is almost identical to the response produced from arsenic. For other heavy elements such as ytterbium and iridium, their responses also get lost in the noise of other elements like copper and iron. And the handheld XRF really have trouble differentiating between them. In the case of rhodium, um, Hardoff suggests that reflection could have led to higher than actual numbers in the government's assay reports. If the sample was reflective, potentially X-rays can bounce back to the gun's detector at characteristic wavelengths of rhod rhodinium. Rhodium. I can't pronounce this. <laughs> can't pronounce any of them right. But in this particular case, the machine doesn't really know if the X-ray came from the tube or from the sample itself. So when you look at acacia's concentrate, which contains a small percentage of gold, like in, in the grand scheme of themes, things, 15% iron, it had like 34% copper, along with arsenic, probably silica, carbon in there. Remember, it's a concentrate from a gold system. It's possible to get false elevated values of gold and other metals when you're using handheld XRFs, and especially if you're using it improperly as well. So Hardoff also points out that while copper is reliable to measure in these machines, the government data reported also a really wild range of percentages, you know, from 15 to 34% copper and sulfur ranged from 15 to 50%, iron from 13 to 30%. If these were assays coming out of a lab, you'd be rolling over in your QAQC just begging what happened, what's wrong, there's something terrible. And so that also, like this wild uh, volatility in, in, these, in these numbers coming from the government also suggests that they could be following imprecise analytical procedures in measuring what's in Acacia's concentrate. So if this is truly the case and that the Tanzanian government overhauled their mining legislation and placed an international mining company under the scandal limelight all because of improper sampling of ore concentrates, then, oh, gosh, what a ball drop. Or as Hardoff points out, maybe it was just a good excuse to make changes to the country's mining legislation. Who knows? It's speculation. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, to get the full story on this and hear more about Hardoff's thoughts, be sure to check out his Odds and Sods article in the Northern Miner because we're going to be posting this on the website really soon. Um, sometime this week. But in the meantime, thank you for listening into this week's Geology Corner and hope you learned a thing or two about handheld XRFs and chat with you again next week. And for those of you who are super keen to nerd out on some more of the XRF fundamentals, just to help guide you through Hardoff's article, I'm going to give you a quick little rundown on how it works. So if you're not super keen on this, just fast forward here and get back to Matt and get on with your day. But anyway, for those of you who are keen to nerd out, here we go. We have to remember that matter is mostly empty space. Each element consists of a nucleus, right? And it's surrounded by these rings of orbiting electrons. Closest to the nucleus, the ring is labeled K, followed by L, M, N, O, <laughs> and so on. So if you can recall that diagram, you know, sprawled over the chalkboard in high school, um, that would be kind of helpful. So when a handheld XRF, or an XRF in general, emits an X-ray, the X-ray bombards the shells, these electron shells, and kicks out electrons. 
So when an electron is kicked out of the K shell, electrons for the L, from the L, M, or N, whatever, drops down and fills that space. Or when one gets kicked out of the L shell, an electron drops from M, and so on and so on. Every time an electron drops out, kicks out, or drops down, it releases energy. And the strongest energy gets emitted when the electron drops into the K shell and decreases in energy as it steps outwards into L, M, N. This is actually really important. Trust me. <laughs> so the handheld XRF picks up that energy that's been emitted. And um, since each element has characteristic signatures, it computes that data and spits out an abundance. That's kind of how it works in a nutshell. So this fundamental look at the science helps explain why heavy metals such as gold, maybe platinum group metals and others, are so difficult to measure using um, XRF. For gold, the amount of energy needed to kick an electron out of the K-line is way higher than what the handheld XRF being emitted from the gun is. So I think the energy being emitted from the X-ray gun is 50 keV, whereas gold's K-line sits at 65 keV. So those electrons aren't going nowhere. Um, as a result, the gun can only knock out electrons out of gold's L or M orbits. So the energy released is lower. And it's also almost identical to the energy produced by x-rays emitted from the K-lines in arsenic, right? And, so, and also, since gold is often in super low abundance, it makes it even harder to measure because it just gets completely lost in, in the noise of other elements. And that's why exploration companies use handheld XRFs to map pathfinder elements to gold, such as arsenic, you know, rather than gold itself because a machine has trouble kind of differentiating between what's going on. Um, for really light elements like beryllium and lithium, for example, uh, their energy signatures are completely lost in the air gap between the sample and the XRF gun. So sorry, lithium explorers, technology is not quite there yet either. But if you're super keen, you can look at the periodic table, and each element will show the um, amount of energy emitted from its KLM lines, et cetera. And you can compare those numbers to other elements to see what overlaps. So anyway, I could probably go on forever about it, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. When you read Hardoff's um, Oz and Sods, this will probably definitely help put everything in perspective. But that's it. I hope you enjoyed the gab and look forward to chatting with you again next week. Have a good one, bye. Welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Leslie for another great geology corner. As mentioned, we will be keeping our eyes on that Barrick Acacia situation in Tanzania as the news breaks. Uh, so do look forward to constant, uh, some constant updates on that as we move ahead. Uh, but that pretty much wraps up the show for the week. Uh, just a quick uh, Northern Minor podcast public service announcement. I will be out of town next week, so uh, we might be a little bit late on content. Now, I have something much demanded. Much demanded. Uh, this has been one of the most demanded things for the podcast, uh, not aside from having John Horgan, Premier John Horgan on from BC, which it, it we haven't made much progress. Update on that. But uh, next week, uh, a couple weeks ago, we ran the segment with Robert Friedland from London. Uh, I, I didn't run the whole thing. I sort of snipped about 15 minutes out uh, where he talked about investing and, and some cool little um, ad stories and stuff like that. Now I've gotten about 20 emails. It's like, can you run the full thing? And I'm like, well, it's on the, it's on our 
website. But yes, I, I think I can run the full Friedland. Uh, so next weekend, or next week, I should say, is probably when we're going to run the full Friedland because I'll be out of town. Um, it's long. It's about 40 minutes of Robert Friedland talking. And people really want to hear it. Uh, so I'm going to put it together, and that's probably what we'll have in place of our usual podcast next week, is uh, our uh, group publisher, Anthony Vaccaro's full interview from the Canadian Mining Symposium with Robert Freeland. People just, like, loved it, went bonkers over it. So it's, uh, what can you say? When Robert talks, people listen. So uh, uh, we will definitely run that next week. Um, as usual, please do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and do rate and follow, subscribe, I guess is the word, this podcast on iTunes. Uh, but once again, thank you for listening. This has been Matthew Keevil with the Northern Miner Podcast, and I'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.